We've said the word lament a lot today, and it's one of those words that if you say it a lot, it's sort of start to wonder, is it like a word? Like it's starting to sound funny in my mouth, like languish or something like that, you know, the word to ling you know, you're languishing. Keep saying lament and it, it sounds increasingly uh, challenging for me anyway, to remember all that it means. Um, and I think that's because it's not something that um, perhaps especially evangelical Christians, those who would say that they're born again, but um, perhaps humans, it's hard. It's hard to lament, and yet it's worth it. And according to the scriptures, it is one of the most profoundly human things that we do. Jesus was very comfortable with it. He prayed Psalm 37 and moments of anguish as I said last week the longest book in our our book is the Psalms and the most common form of Psalm is lament Um, there is a lot to say about suffering both general and specific but there are times that we can talk about it too long and miss the opportunity to sing and to pray how long and to groan which is why last week the sermon was about six minutes. I didn't time it. Somebody did. You can correct me. Perhaps later. But there is an entire book on suffering. I assume you know that. Perhaps you've just flipped through the table of contents and you thought it was about vocation, the book of Job. It's actually the book of Job. Um, And it's a really fascinating book. I think it's a lot like Shakespeare for Christians, that we're familiar with the story, but we haven't read all the words And that's okay. You know, there are these three characters, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And uh, when they're talking, you're going to start to sort of phase out. That's all right. That's all right. You can kind of skim those sections, kind of like when it's a lesser character in Shakespeare. You're like, get to the action. But it's a really interesting book. God has an adversary. He's not equal to God. In fact, he can do nothing without God's uh, explicit permission. And yet... The word Satan literally means adversary and Job the Satan, the adversary. And he asks God permission to afflict a God follower with um, physical illness, but first takes away most of his family um, and his wealth and then his physical health. One of the things that's so interesting about that character is he's not mentioned at the end. So in the beginning, the Satan approaches God and asks for permission to afflict Satan. God allows it. It's a very important theological word. Allowed it. Then Job spends uh, 32-ish chapters with his three friends, crying out to God, asking him to show up and defend himself. uses a lot of courtroom language. Defend your actions, God. Then Job's friends speak up after sitting with him for seven days, which was a brilliant and wonderful and loving move on their part. And then they started talking. And they get rebuked by Job and by God. Um, it's about as harsh of a direct rebuke as God gives. And a lot of what they said is true, and a lot of what they said is partly true. And the major mistake that they made, Job's friends who were sitting with him, was their timing. Day eight started connecting the dots between Job's suffering and what they understood of God. Job rebukes them, but they keep talking. So God shows up and he says, you spoke wrongly of me. 
And what you and I need to notice is not just that they say some wrong things. They say a lot of right things too. But their timing couldn't have been worse. Point out something interesting about the book of Job. Our text this morning is Job 38, 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Those of you that have thought, I really want God to show up, I'm just going to say you could be a little more familiar with your Bible and know that you really don't. He has shown up in Jesus. We know what we need to know. It's very scary. Anyway. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? It's an interesting question. Does he actually not know who Job is? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Does God not know? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I want to point something out that is, is, is some of you are wondering and others of you have known for some time uh, and some of you missed because the language is so beautifully poetic even in, in its uh, aggressive confrontation. Uh, is God being sarcastic with Job? With those questions? Asking him rhetorical questions that clearly God knows the answer to if he exists and can in fact become a whirlwind to talk to people? Uh, yes, And for some of us, that's going to be disorienting because we hate it when people are sarcastic with us. Um, But I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all, yes. Second of all, um, we can really only be sarcastic with someone if there's at least some level of intimacy. The second thing is, it, it, it shows us some condescension. And not condescension like the person at work talking down to you. It's one of the ways that God reminds Job and reminds us There is much that we do not and will not understand. So this is the answer to suffering in Scripture. The answer for our hearts and for eternity is the work of Jesus, as Beth talked about in her lament. But the direct answer scripturally is Job. God shows up and asks over 50 questions. Waxes poetic about the beauty of creation. Why? Why is that the answer? God is being gently and lovingly condescending and reminding us that there are things that we will know and things that we will not know. From the whirlwind, we know God. This God, Genesis 1 through the end of Revelation, shows up. The showing up is Jesus of Nazareth, but throughout the scriptures, people cry out to God and he answers them. In this case, he shows up, asks over 50 questions. He speaks eloquently about creation, but the thing I want to point out is that he shows up. Throughout the scriptures, men and women cry out to him and he answers. Men and women ask him to show up, and until Jesus, he would show up in various ways and forms. And then after Jesus, we are to remember that he shows up. The theological term for this is imminent. Not eminent like supreme, but imminent near. God's nearness throughout Scripture. His imminence throughout Scripture. 
Perhaps a better word is with. The terms for Jesus is, or one of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Happens throughout scripture. God's imminence. From the whirlwind, we know God, but we also know when and how to speak as friends, as spiritual friends. I'll say again, Job's friends did a good job for a week. They sat with him in the ashes saying nothing. And then they started speculating about why. And they started talking about God. And it's a, it, 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 there's so much to learn and so much to say. And we have so many promises and explanation of God and his truth. And yet, when we are suffering and when our friends are suffering, it isn't the time to try and force those dots to connect. I wrote a list of my favorite books on suffering. And you're like, that's so weird that you have favorite books on suffering. Sorry. I am a teacher and a preacher about the gospel of God. And yet you and I live in a disorienting world in the presence of sickness and death and pain and disorientation. So I've been wrestling with this for a long time. So I'm going to give you my list of favorite books. I don't want you to read any of them. But I want to remind us that there are good answers. Not the way it's supposed to be. By Alvin Plantinga is a terrific book on sin. A grief observed that C.S. Lewis published under a pseudonym because he was worried it would be too disorienting for people. That he published after his wife died. Don't go to the problem of pain if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. Not first. If you're in pain, your friend's in pain, and you want to read, go to a grief observed. He says, among other things, do not come to me with spiritual explanations, or I will suspect you do not understand. That's our heroic eminent apologist saying do not come to me with spiritual explanations God medicine and suffering I read in seminary and started sobbing in the middle of it threw it across the room finished it cried a little bit again I've read it three times so helpful and one of the ways that's helpful is reminding me of how much I'm not going to understand Suffering as a Way of Life by Peter Kreef. Lament for a Son by Nicholas Wolterstorff, which is the first place I heard the term the mourner's bench. So if you wonder where I got that term, he, I'm sure he didn't coin it, but he's the one who coined it for me. Message of the Psalms. Which doesn't sound like a book on suffering, and yet it is, because so many of the Psalms are songs of how do we do suffering together. But taking any of those texts and trying to learn from them today is a mistake. I list all those because I don't want it to be like, no information, like, is my pastor agnostic that he thinks there's no information about suffering? No, but today is not the day that we talk about that. Don't go get those books off my shelf. In a couple weeks you can, it's fine, but not today. Spurgeon Sorrows, one of our, one of the best preachers of the last couple hundred years, a Baptist 19th century preacher, suffered from severe depression because of chemistry and circumstances in his life. A little book on that called Spurred and Sorrows that I'm a big fan of. I'm reading it through a second time right now. But today, we're not trying to connect the dots. It's not because we don't know things. It's because connecting those dots is mean. You know what Job says to his friends when they start trying to connect the dots? He says, you are miserable friends. 
A miserable friend sits with someone else on the mourner's bench and attempts to explain that person's misery in light of what they know about the character of God. A miserable friend sits on the mourner's bench and tries to explain to their friend the character of God to them in their misery instead of sitting with them. And listen, it's not easy to sit. It's not. Have you ever been sitting with someone in their grief and you just start shaking? That's what happens to me. Because there's all this emotion and pain and disorientation. And I want to talk about all the things because I'm a preacher and I know the word. And it's, but I don't want to talk about it. Because sitting on the bench together is the time that we just sit You can ask about the suffering that they're going through. That's okay. They might not want to talk about it. If you can ask in such a way that gives them the freedom to say, no, I'm not going to talk about that right now. That would be the best way to ask. Uh, Don't try and help. When you're sitting on the mourner's bench, don't try and help. You can't. What I mean by that is, if you're sitting on the mourner's bench and you're, tr- and you're asking, how can I help? You're missing the opportunity to be with. You want to offer something, offer it. But don't say, what can I do? Please don't say, what can I do? Come up with something to offer and offer it. They'll say yes or no. The difference is, if you ask them, what can I do? They have to answer a question. They have to think creatively. They have to figure out what you're able to do for them. When I had cancer, uh, there were two different folks that reached out to my family in this way that were so helpful. One showed up to a waiting room and he just said to, uh, he texted my wife and said, I'm in the waiting room and I'm going to pray. If you'd like me to join you, I will. No worries. Very clear what he was going to do. Another one said, uh, we made a blueberry pie. Can we come eat it with you? That was eight years ago and it sticks out in my mind because it was so easy to say yes and no. You can ask for stories. Stories are so helpful. You can tell stories. It's a way of being with. To ask for stories and to tell stories and be willing to hear no or I want to hear that right now. Worse even than Job saying you are miserable friends, God said you spoke wrong about me. And the reason it was wrong was not just because some of the things that they said were wrong. They said a lot of right things. It's because their timing was so bad. That doesn't mean they shouldn't have been there. But we learn to sit with one another on the mourner's bench. And we won't always know when and how it's coming. But if we're too busy talking about God, we might miss the opportunity to be with our friends or our family or our neighbors who are suffering. I went to a funeral on Monday for an infant. Yeah, it's been a hard week. And they sang, uh, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, which is a beautiful song. And the mom stood up, and you have never seen people, perhaps especially Presbyterians, stand up so fast. Because we had a moment where we got to be with her 
and you're like, yeah, that's all fine. What do I do? You can, you can ask how they're doing if you're super brave. <laughs> On a good day for me, I try and come up with a creative way to ask how they're doing in a more simple way. Are you sleeping? How's the food taste? And that might sound silly to you, but listen, if you've ever gone through a rough season, everything tastes like ashes. So it might sound silly, but you could just say, how's the food tasting? Some creative way of asking how you're doing. And here's the thing. When we learn the spiritual skill of lament to God and the mourner's bench and spiritual friendship with one another, then our friends are actually going to ask us questions. What we learn from the whirlwind, from the book on suffering, we know about God, we learn when and how to speak, and we know what we will not know. The reason God asks Job over 50 questions and talks about creation is a gentle, loving condescension that there are things we will not know. When we pray, our Father who art in heaven, have you ever wondered, like, why is it important to locate God in our prayer? Like, is it, are we doing geography? I don't understand why that's important. Have you ever thought that? I used to for years. And now I'm so comforted. I'm so comforted. I'm so comforted by that little prepositional phrase, in heaven. Because there is one who knows the purposes of your past and mine, your today and mine, and your future and mine. And you and I are not he, but he knows gentle, loving reminder from Jesus both times that he taught the Lord's Prayer. Our good Father who is in heaven, who knows our past and our present and our future. What's really frightening about this is when we learn the skill sitting on the mourner's bench and then our friends will begin to ask how do you know God is good? And I think we begin with man I struggle with that too but if they ask then we would start connecting the dots as best we can with humility with the scriptures with grace the mirror question to that one is how do you know he's in control? By the way, if you've suffered, you're either asking one or both of those questions pretty regularly. How do we know he's good? How do we know he's in control? I think perhaps if we sat on the mourner's bench long enough and our friend says, how do you know he's in control? We start with, it really doesn't feel like it, does it? Which is an acknowledgement, by the way, that he is sovereign. But in friendship, we don't have to speak for God. A friend told me once he can, he can defend himself. That friend is very wise about the things of God. Oftentimes, uh, once we've sat on the bench long enough with our friend, they'll say, how do we know he loves us? And they'll usually say God, because most people are familiar enough with the story of Jesus that you cannot look at the story of Jesus and think, does he really love us? but it feels like he doesn't. So we say, does God really love us? And I think in our humanity and humility, we sit and say, boy, this hurts, doesn't it? 
And then, perhaps, we connect some of the dots as best we can understand them about our experience and the truths of God. From the whirlwind, from this wild book of heavenly debates about suffering to discussions of God and asking him to show up. Then he shows up in a whirlwind. We know about him and we know when and how to speak as spiritual friends and we know what we will not know, which is how to fully connect these dots for ourselves or for others. But Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he didn't have the Gospels. He didn't even have the whole Old Testament, perhaps any of it. But he was still able to say, but I know that my Redeemer lives. So that's what you and I do today. We tell our own soul that we know our Redeemer lives. We hold it up as best we can in prayer and in song and in interaction with his word. We pray and groan knowing that we know wonderful things about God and his character, but we do not know everything. And that is okay for now. We continue to look to him, saying to our soul, I know my Redeemer lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do not long to be good at sitting on the mourner's bench with our friends. And yet we do. Because you have placed family and friends in our lives. And while you have dealt a mortal blow to death and suffering, they are, we are very much in their presence still. And so as we wait for you to return and make all things new. Help us. Help us to be good spiritual friends to our own souls before you and to our friends and family who mourn and suffer. Thank you that you are indeed the man of sorrows who we cannot look at and say you do not know what it is like, even as we still have hundreds and thousands of questions. Bless us, Holy Spirit, with a tangible and palpable sense of your presence, holding us up, giving us peace and joy amidst the ashes, joy that feels nothing like happiness and yet abides. <laughs>